Pastor Scott began a five-week series last Sunday on our identity as New Life Church. And based on the New Testament book of Colossians, we're going to be exploring four core values that make up our identity. These values are we need the gospel, we engage as missionaries, we serve as a team, and we live life together. These values are actually printed in a nice little booklet that we just received over the weekend. And I'd encourage you, if you, if you don't already have, the booklet used to look like this, kind of brown tone. If, if you have one of those, great. The same information is in here except for a, a couple of words that we changed, a little more action-oriented. But if you don't have one of these, then please pick up one of these. They're in a basket across the, the wall on the foyer. And you can invest some time in looking at that carefully. They're available to you after the service. In 2013, the Japanese ramen noodle fast food chain Ichiran brought its concept of the ramen focus booth to Hong Kong. Eating at a table for one, along a wall of similar tables separated by partitions. Well, since then, the growing demand has led this company to opening up a second outlet in that city. And when Ichiran opened up another outlet in Taipei, Taiwan, four years later, there was a line of customers for 240 hours solid. That's 10 days straight. Their public relations and marketing officer was quoted as saying, our layout design helps customers focus on the food without having worries about their surroundings. Well, from ramen focus booths to solo karaoke cubicles to phone apps that mimic human interaction, the Chinese are devising solutions to help them fight loneliness. But this is not unique to Asian countries. In the uh, free-thinking and so-called progressive land of my grandfathers, Sweden, a recent documentary aired entitled, How Do You Stop a Plague of Loneliness? And one of the most gripping visuals in this was uh, viewers watched as investigators knock on a door, enter a debris-filled apartment, and then discover the remains of a man who hanged himself. A man that nobody discovered for two years. Because nobody came to check. And because Sweden's ever-present automatic bill pay system never stopped debiting his rent. Um, Off-screen, uh, one of the investigators was heard as saying, sometimes I wonder why we are so unhappy. There's nothing to glue us together. Former Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Vivek Murthy, was the first to call loneliness an epidemic. He's quoted as saying, loneliness causes an insidious type of stress that leads to chronic inflammation and increased risk of heart disease, arthritis, and diabetes. Loneliness, in fact, has the same effect on mortality as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Well, additional recent headlines from major U.S. news providers, and you can find these on the Internet, they reinforce this dilemma. Young people report more loneliness than the elderly. The biggest threat facing middle-aged men isn't smoking or obesity, it's loneliness. Social isolation kills more people than obesity. Well, why should we care? What's the point of even talking about that this morning? Americans are lonelier than ever. 
Even though opportunities for social connection have exponentially increased, even with affordable phone calls and texting and email and various other social media, we're talking to each other less. Despite the prevalence of car ownership and the low cost of cross-country air travel, we're spending less time with our families. You may have read the book Bowling Alone. After decades of bowling leagues, Americans began bowling alone. Well, today, in an age of social media, we're not even bowling. We're scrolling alone. We are not merely individuals in need of autonomy and self-esteem. We are persons in community. We are wired for deep relational connection. A researcher at UCLA who's been applying functional magnetic resonance imaging to questions of relationships and community has repeatedly reinforced the conclusion that our brains are wired. We are hardwired to connect with other people. And these are, this is not a mistake. These are intelligent design features that make up who we are as human beings. In other words, Both soft and hard sciences agree. We are relational beings. We are designed to connect to one another. And not surprisingly, the Bible has lots to say about this, and we'll look at some of that this morning. In this this mission vision booklet, as well as on our website, we elaborate further on what we mean when we say, We live life together. Our mutual commitment to Christ leads us to love and value one another. And then we go on to describe three specific things that happen when we live life together. One, we are committed uh, to being in a life group. We show hospitality and we share meals together. And... I love this last one. We get close enough to each other that we begin to frustrate one another. You'll also notice in the booklet that there are five pillars for our life groups. We are encouraged to meet together and to enjoy food together, to eat a meal together. And as we do that, we fellowship around that table and we talk about life. We talk about real issues that are happening in our lives and then we pray about those. And we also look at God's Word to see what God's Word has to say about what it is we're talking about. And then together, collectively, we go in mission. We go into our neighborhoods on mission together. Those are the five pillars for our life groups. Well, this is what makes up the thumbprint, so to speak, or the identity of New Life Church. Well, let's look at this passage of Scripture that has already been read And let's look at it in a little more detail. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bible to uh, Colossians chapter 3, or turn on your Bible to Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at six verses this morning that give us uh, some hints, some clues as to how to live life together. This is part of our identity as New Life Church. Colossians 3, beginning with verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Once again, this is part of our identity, our thumbprint, so to speak, as New Life Church. Within the context of this chapter, and actually this book, uh, the Apostle Paul, earlier in this chapter, is talking about because of who we are, because of our identity, we have been called to strip off, literally to, to remove all garments, to strip off the old self with its sinful practices. That's what verse 9 is all about. And then here in verse 12, Paul uh, continues with that thought process, and he uses language, the kind of language that we'd, you would use to describe putting on clothing, putting on items of attire, a, a new wardrobe you might say. And it describes what is necessary to live within this new community that God is, is creating. The new people with a new identity that He has created. Look at the end of verse 11. This new people is in fact, Christ is all and He is in all. Our identity then, in verse 12, is based on three actions, three descriptions uh, initiated by God. We are, one, chosen ones. God has chosen us, not because we deserved it, not because we paid for it, not because we can earn it. It's just God's choice. God has chosen us. As a result, we're holy. We are literally, the word means to be set apart for a peculiar purpose. We're holy. And, notice, we're beloved. We saw this this summer when we went through the Psalms over and over again. The loving kindness or the steadfast love of God for His people. So we are chosen, we are holy, and we are beloved. These three words appear elsewhere in Scripture. Let me call to your attention just two passages. You can look at these later. You might want to jot these down. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6-8, through 8, Moses, on the verge of the nation of Israel going into the land of promise, and Moses knows he's not going with them. They're on the plains of Moab, and Moses says in Deuteronomy 7, You're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. In verse 7, The Lord set His love on you and chose you. It's because the Lord loves you and is keeping that oath. So when Paul is referencing those three terms here in Colossians 3, someone in his audience would understand what he's talking about. Fortunately, Peter also speaks uh, to the, uses the same words, speaks in the same vein, except Peter applies it not just to Jews, but he also includes Gentiles. And that's essentially what Paul is doing here. In 1 Peter 2.9, 
Peter writes, you, and he's writing to Gentiles and Jews who have come to faith in Jesus, you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for his possession. He says in verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we are chosen, we are holy, and we are beloved. Now look back at verse 11. Verse 11 reads, Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So whatever our our worldly background or status might be, we all have now a fundamental identity that's been determined by Christ. And it's reinforced by the people of Christ to whom uh, we belong. Shakespeare once wrote, Apparel oft proclaims the man. And from that phrase we get the saying, Clothes make the man, or clothes make the woman. Well, let's take a little bit closer look here at this passage again, starting in verse 12. Let's take a closer look at what I would call this wardrobe for living life together. How do we dress for success in community? Paul lists five virtues that we'll look at very briefly here, beginning in verse 12. But before we look at the five virtues, I want to call to our attention a verse out of Romans. In Romans chapter 13, verse 14, the same author, Paul, writes that we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I think we're going to see here that these five virtues that he identifies in Colossians are essentially putting on Christ, because Christ is the best model for all five. Uh, These five virtues here in uh, verse 12, they're not mere personal attributes or, or characteristics. Literally, this is part of putting on Christ. And each one of these has more to do with our interpersonal relationships with each other uh, and other members of Christ's church than it does us personally. A former pastor of mine is uh, really famous for making this statement. Christ-like transformation occurs best within the context of community. And I love that. Um, within our life groups, within what we do here in our, in our youth group, our children's Sunday school downstairs, even our worship together, Christ-like transformation occurs best in those contexts when we're with God's people, as opposed to trying to, to go alone and do it on our own. Well, let's look at these five. It's, it's a list of five. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but enough to hopefully pique your curiosity, and you can go back and look at these in a little more detail. The first one is compassionate hearts. If you have a King James Version with you this morning, you'll notice that it reads bowels of compassion because the Hebrews, a culture felt like, like the, 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 the center of emotion and even the center of thinking and decision-making was in your bowels, not in your head, not in what we would call your heart. We translate it compassionate hearts, but literally it's that, it's that place of deep-seated emotion. And we have all felt that. We've, we have been moved to compassion. We have been moved uh, to, to make decisions about people. Or we've seen things that have caused kind of a visceral reaction. Well, that's what's going on. It's my favorite Greek word. It's the word splachna. I just love that. 
you know, it kind of just uh, gets caught in the front of your mouth and then it just spills out. Shplakna. But it's a, it's a wonderful term, but it's so countercultural. When Paul writes this, that we're to have compassionate hearts, that would fly in the face of first century Greek and Roman culture, where those who were about to die or those who were injured or children who were born with deformities were pushed off and told to go to the wall of the city and die. So for Paul to say, no, we're to have compassionate, deep-seated hearts for, for people and people in need. It flies in the face of his culture. It describes an aching concern that we have for each other from deep within. Think of Jesus. In both Matthew and Mark's Gospel, when Jesus sees the masses, what happens? He has compassion on them. He has bowels of compassion toward them. Again, Jesus is our model. The second virtue listed is kindness or gentleness. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5. It's that virtue of a man or a woman whose uh, neighbor's good is as dear to him as his own good. It's the same term that Jesus uses in Matthew 11 when he says, My yoke, take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My yoke is kind. It's gentle. Reminds us of the Good Samaritan. That, that man who uh, not only took the time, but also invested personal resources in order to come to the aid of someone in deep need. So compassionate hearts, kindness. The third is humility. And we're going to see here that all five of these are closely related. In fact, they're synonymous in many respects. Humility is that humbleness of mind or modesty. Again, it's modeled by Jesus. For us, I believe it's a deep sense of knowing our place, that God is God and I'm not. It's that that deep-seated modesty or humility of mind. Again, this is not a concept that would have been uh, understood by Greek culture. They, they, didn't, they didn't even have a word for this that they would use in classical Greek. Yet Paul is calling God's people to be people of humility. He also calls us to be people who are meek. I didn't say weak. I said meek. <laughs> Meekness. Meekness, again, is, is a, a type of gentleness. It's a, it's a form of mildness. It, too, is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance. Meekness is the mark of Jesus' rule. Jesus came to earth bringing salvation, and he did it without force. The best example of, of meekness. Aristotle once said that it carries a sense of always being angry at the right time, never being angry at the wrong time. So there's emotion involved here, but it's controlled emotion. In fact, uh, it's control, it's self-control based on God's control. That's what's behind that term, meekness. And then finally, patience. Or again, if you have different versions, it might say long-suffering or endurance or forbearance. Under the ill-treatment of others around us, it's a slowness in avenging wrongs. It's enduring wrong treatment and putting up with exasperating conduct by others rather than um, desiring vengeance or uh, flying into a rage right away. 
Well, look at those five pieces of clothing, so to speak. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Again, these five interpersonal virtues characterize, characterize our identity as New Life Church, as members of Christ's new community. How we're supposed to, what we're supposed to look like and how we're supposed to act toward each other. Well, in verse 13, uh, these, this, this list of virtues, it's not just a list, but these list of virtues actually get, get fleshed out, and they get fleshed out fully uh, within the context of everyday life. Going to a, a weekly meeting with a group of people from this church is a good place to start, but that's not the place where this ends. These virtues get fleshed out actively, ongoing, day-in and day-out kind of behavior. There's two of them. Uh, there's, there's two actions, two ongoing behaviors that are, that are mentioned here, and it's instructive. The first one is bearing with one another. This means putting up with. This means getting frustrated with, but yet enduring with, mutually, reciprocally, together, in community. And if you think about it, that's a first and uh, necessary step in cultivating community, this core value of New Life Church. So for the sake of maintaining community, we will sometimes have to put up with people with whom we may not normally choose to associate. We frustrate each other at times. Living life together can get messy, right? Why? Because life is messy. So if we're living life together, then it can get messy. It can get frustrating. And life groups uh, consist of people that may not be in my normal preferred, quote-unquote, group of friends. We find find ourselves connecting with people that are very different from us, either in age, gender, background, status, experience. So we bear with one another, and it starts there. But there's more. Paul goes on to say, and if there's a complaint that comes up, then we forgive each other. We extend grace to one another. This conveys the idea that Forgiving others is, is an act of giving grace, and it's, it's freely offered. It's often not deserved, but it, and it's ongoing. It's unceasing, unwearying. I told Scott Haugen this morning, I, that happened to me this morning with him. I was, we were running a little bit late before our prayer time back in our offices, and he came back and said hello. I didn't even say hello to him this morning. I looked at him, nodded, and went in. I was on task mode. And Tim can get that way sometime. I can get on task mode as opposed to personal relationship mode. What did I do? The Holy Spirit convicted me of that during our prayer time, and I made a beeline to him this morning before the service started because I wanted to be able to stand up here and use that as an illustration of that's what we need to do. We need to not just bear with each other. Yeah, we need to, we need to seek forgiveness from each other and to freely give forgiveness, which is what he did to me. Do you see that? It, it's, so those, those virtues get fleshed out. They, they make sense. They, they allow us, enable us to actually live life together. We were discussing this earlier this week amongst our staff, and we realized that life groups actually provide the primary context for pastoral care. 
There are things that happen in this church that Pastor Scott doesn't learn about, I don't learn about, until someone else has already heard about it in a life group, and someone else is already there, on site, first responder, at the hospital, ministering to people. And that's the way it should be. As opposed to some churches where we rely upon the paid pastoral staff to do all the pastoral care. No, it happens in the context of community. It grows out of our commitment to life groups. Now, this takes sacrifice, right? This takes discipline, intentionality, right? But it produces amazing joy. Well, building this type of community, again, is our identity as New Life Church. Living this type of life together. Pastor Scott and I were talking about this earlier this week, this specific point, and he made the comment which has stuck with me. He said, you know, this, this, what we're talking about, may be the one area where the church has a competitive advantage over what the world has to offer. Think about that. A psychology lecturer at the University of Oxford recently claimed if someone were to create a technology that mimicked the sensation of being close to actual people, they'd enjoy massive financial success. (laughs) And you know, we're seeing that. If you're reading the headlines, we're seeing that with artificial intelligence. But let let me pose here, but the operative word there is artificial. Within the context of the church, that's real. And that's, that's what occurs, and that is, that is what makes up who we are as New Life Church. Well, h- how is this even possible? Fortunately, Paul answers that question in the next verse, because he says in verse 14, uh, above all these, put on love. It's the picture of, of kind of wrapping up your wardrobe and making it all work by putting on that final garment, that overcoat, so to speak. Or maybe it's some sort of a, of a, a sash that, that puts it all together, right? How, whatever you want to think about that, it's just an analogy. But it's, it's that analogy of putting on love, sacrificial love. Uh, Paul goes on to say it binds everything. He uses a term there that speaks of the ligaments in the body and how the ligaments hold our bones and muscles together and attach them together. That's what love does. This agape love, this sacrificial, selfless love. It's either like an outer garment or it's like ligaments. And what it does, though, is it produces the kind of unity that Paul and others in the Scriptures talk about and reference when they talk about what it means to live life together. Again, this is our identity. This is who we are as New Life Church. Now, the Apostle Paul gets very practical in verses 15, 16, and 17. Fortunately, he doesn't just throw a bunch of virtues at us He doesn't talk about how those virtues can get fleshed out in community, but then he actually gives us some specific things that we can do, that we can participate in this. And he uses three imperatives in these three verses, plus many additional ongoing action words, participles to be be exact, if you're an English teacher. Um, Basically, though, pointing that all of life, not just what we do here on Sunday morning, but all of life, is to be lived out together, collectively, in obedience. The first one is this. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. A couple of um, advents ago, I went to 
uh, a, an Anglican church. I wanted to I wanted to experience kind of their approach to worship. And there was a time in the service after the teaching of the word and before the celebrating of Lord's Supper where they have what's called basically passing the peace. Well, what is that? What is the peace of Christ? Well, it's that that pact or agreement or truce that's been purchased by the blood of Jesus. And what they do in that service is they greet each other in the name of Jesus. And may, may peace be, un, be unto you. May the peace of Christ be unto you. And may it be unto you as well. And so there's this interchange back and forth. The peace of Christ. But notice what Paul says here about that. He says, let rule or let this peace of Christ, this truce, this agreement, this um, arrangement that Christ has paid with his blood for, let this rule in your hearts. Have you ever wondered what that means? I have. Rule. What does it mean for the peace of Christ to rule? Those two things seem to me to be polar opposites. Well, I'm going to use an illustration that will make sense to those of you that are sports fans, maybe to the rest of you not. Do you know what this is? It's a football penalty flag. And basically what's, what's being stated, what, what Paul is saying here, is to, when there's a disagreement, when there's um, something that needs to be worked out between two people, we're to let rule, we're to let the peace of Christ umpire or referee. So if I haven't... No, I've cleared this ahead of time. He knows it's coming. If I've had a, an issue with Matt, let's say, he's a big Pittsburgh Steelers fan, this is Pittsburgh Steeler Yellow. Um, instead of just going into my corner and not dealing with him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw the peace of Christ out there. That's a pretty good shot. I'm going to throw the peace of Christ out there and allow the peace of Christ to umpire or to referee our relationship. Does that make sense? And that's reciprocal. He does that back with me. Well, that's, that's an amazing concept, but that's what God's Word is saying. One commentator put it this way, wherever there is a conflict of motives or impulses or reasons, the peace of Christ must step in and decide which is to prevail. What a great attitude to have that Paul tells us. The second thing you'll notice in this verse, verse 15, he concludes by giving another imperative, and that is to be thankful in everything to be thankful. That, that same concept is going to show up at the very end of this passage in verse 17. In verse 16, though, look at the next, um, the next imperative that he is, he is giving us. He's telling us to let the word of Christ dwell in us. And the term there means to literally to take up residence in us, to inhabit us, to occupy our lives, and to do it richly, abundantly. To not be content with just spiritual snacks, but let God's Word take residence abundantly within us. Is that that what's happening in your life? Is that what's happening in my life? Is, Is the Word of God at home in our hearts? Is the Word of God settling there? Does the Word of God live there within our lives? The Holy Spirit, you know, uses the Word of God to communicate to us. The Holy Spirit speaks the language of scriptures to talk with us and to guide us in life. And so if, if we don't have God's word at home in us, then we're not giving the Holy Spirit as much raw material to work with. Does that make sense as well? 
this uh, this last February, you know that I was uh, in Ethi- many of you know that I was in Ethiopia, and I had an opportunity to do some teaching there, and I was teaching 65 young church planters, and these young men, mostly a few women sprinkled in there, but just eager to plant churches and to build communities of faith. And so I shared with them what I, I don't have a picture of this, but what I call my spiritual food pyramid. For those of you that are my age or older, you, you know what a food pyramid is, right? And there's basics at the bottom and there's fluff at the top, right? And so it's, it's, it's a, we, we build on that. Well, I think there's a spiritual food pyramid as well. We hear God's Word. We read God's Word. We study God's Word. We memorize God's Word. We meditate on His Word. And then what do we do as a result? We obey. We obey His Word. That's the spiritual food uh, pyramid. Christ-like character is not formed from a random collection of favorite texts and personal experiences. I call that the hallmark approach to spirituality. But it's formed by digesting whole books of the Bible, allowing the Holy Spirit, who wrote these books, to determine our spiritual diet. That's why New Life preaches through whole books of Scripture. And when we finish this five-week series, we'll go back to Romans. We'll be in chapter 9, and we'll continue our study through the book of Romans. Now, I'd like you to keep your finger in, in Colossians 3, if you're using a paper Bible. You can, if you're using digital, you can scroll back. I want you to look back real quickly at Ephesians 5. It's the pre, uh, t- two books earlier, Ephesians 5, because I want, I want to make a connection here that I think is very important at this point. This passage in Colossians 3 that we're looking at, specifically verse, verses 16 and 17, are really parallel with something Paul says in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5.18 begins with, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Right? You're probably familiar with that passage. And then Paul goes on to say, verses 19, 20, 21, he says, because we're filled with the Spirit, then we're able to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're singing, we're making melody to the Lord with our heart, we're giving thanks. Well, look back at Colossians now. Notice, that's exactly what is happening here in Colossians 3. We are teaching each other, admonishing one another, we're singing psalms and hymns and so forth. In other words, there's an integral connection. In fact, I would say there's an equivalent connection between being filled with the Spirit and letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. For those of you that might be uh, math aficionados or algebra teachers. Remember the old transitive law. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. These two passages written roughly at the same time, that's what's going on here. So if you want to know, how do I get filled with the Spirit? I can ask to get filled with the Spirit, but how do I do that? Be in God's Word. Because letting the Word of Christ dwell or be at home in us abundantly, richly, is connected to being filled with the Spirit. And as a result, we teach each other, and we even admonish each other, and we sing together, and we're all in all, we're giving thanks. I want to look at a, a very quick little um, phrase that comes right after admonishing one another. Notice it says to do that in all wisdom. In all wisdom. Wisdom 
develops in relationships where compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience are practiced. So if we're practicing those virtues that Paul listed, then wisdom is going to grow. It grows more, in fact, in community, in the corporate environment, in the relational environment, particularly in this church, in our life groups. Wisdom is forged. It's forged in the fires of committed relationships. Well, Paul puts a a bow on this passage, so to speak, with verse 17, when he says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Uh, That's a succinct yet very thorough summary exhortation. So, if you're already in a life group and you come across, your, your, your mind comes across your mind the question occasionally, maybe an hour or two hours before your life group starts, and you wonder, why am I even going tonight? Why do I go to a life group? And uh, is, it, uh, is it worth the effort of me even being there? I'd encourage you to reflect on that verse. I know I will when I have those thoughts, when I have those questions. Whatever I do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The core value of what we're talking about this morning, again, is, is our, our identity. It's, it, it, it's a core value of who we are as New Life Church. And... This doesn't just happen once a week or two times a month, however, whatever the frequency is for your life group. As good as that is, and that's, a, that's an important starting point, but our desire here goes far beyond that. We, we desire to see adults and teenagers and children finding rhythms of true community together day in and day out. You see, a life group is about people. It's not about a time on the calendar. It's not about a meeting that we hold during the week. Healthy life groups encourage, challenge, and support one another as we collectively do life together. Well, as you can imagine, uh, today, this Sunday, is Life Group Kickoff Sunday. That that makes total sense, right? Because it fits with this core value. And so if you're not in a life group, then I want to urge you exhort you, whatever strong term I can come up with there, to join one, to be a part of one. Even if you're not a a member of New Life Church, if you're just a regular attender, even if you're just checking us out, join a life group and participate in this life-on-life community experience together. Uh, Our life group leaders, and there are several of them that are here this morning, are going to be in the foyer, and they're going to be available to pounce on you. No, no, they're going to be available to... Answer questions that you might have about how does this really work and when do you guys meet and where do you meet and what do I need to bring and that kind of thing. In fact, before I close this message with prayer, I'd like our life group leaders and their spouse, if you're married, and the host, if it's in a different location, if you would just stand. I'm not going to ask you to say anything. I just want you to stand so that those of you maybe that are not yet in a life group, look around the room. 
look for someone that looks attractive to you. <laughs> and then talk to them out in the foyer. You, you can be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing, pertinent, specific truth in your word. And Lord, I'm grateful to you. I'm grateful, Father, that you've allowed Debbie and me, called Debbie and me here to be a part of this church that values uh, the importance of doing life together. Sundays are great, Father, and we worship you together, and it's, it's a wonderful time together, wonderful experience. But you've provided for so much more, Lord, and we're so grateful for that. And we're grateful that this church is committed to that. So, Lord, would you, would you take the truths that we've heard from your word this morning and drive them deeply into our minds and hearts? And then may, may those truths take root and may they grow and bear fruit. All to your name, all to your kingdom, all to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.